0: Other men's freedom fighter, Martin Kessler. And joining me is everybody's
1: favorite tank boy, John Armidio. Hi, John, how are you doing? Um, I'm doing uh, great, Martin. Better than um, a lost tank crew in the middle of Afghanistan, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> that's good because we're here today to discuss
0: The Beast, aka The Beast of War, the 1988 American war film about the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, directed by Kevin Reynolds and based on a play, Nanawati, by William Mastro-Simone. I hope I'm saying that right. I've read his name a bunch, but I haven't actually heard it out loud. (laughs) I think Um,
1: think that's it, yeah.
0: um, The film is about, I guess, the second year of the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. Uh, There's a brutal attack on an Afghan village by a Soviet tank crew, and... uh, After that, it gets separated from the other tanks and a group of the Afghans get together with uh, some Mujahideen fighters and go out to get this tank. But uh, things turn out to not be as simple as that. Everybody's motivation and morals and uh, allegiances will be tested as this chase plays out between the Afghans and the Soviet tank crew. Um,
1: So, what was your first impression of The Beast? Yeah, um, I loved it. And, (laughs) you know, my first impression was, like, holy shit, how did this happen? Like, how did this movie get made in America in the late 80s? You know, like, in the same era as Rambo 3. Um, (laughs) Like, you know, as much as I love the American brand of action movies in the 80s, you know, they certainly had a Reaganite flavor to them, unless you're talking about like they live or something. And for this movie to be pretty apolitical, except for like war as hell. I mean, you, you can't be apolitical when you're talking about um, the Soviet invasion of, of Afghanistan, but it's not like it's taking a real strong political stance uh, uh, against the, the Soviets because they're incredibly Humanized, um, you know, mm-hmm. and it, and it, and I think when you compare to the portrayal of the Mujahideen in um Rambo 3 or even the Living Daylights, it's Th- this film is dedicated to the brave fighters of the yeah. Mujahideen, <laughs> yes, yeah, like it's the end of Rambo 3, yeah, it, it's incredibly insightful and empathetic to to both sides of this conflict and and the destruction it wrought, and you know. And when you look at the work of you know Kevin Reynolds, like he came up with a story for Red Dawn, which is a much more naive kind of immature look at war, I think. And yeah, I'm and I'm not surprised the studio buried buried it, but I'm also pretty sad that its its fate was relative obscurity until it got rediscovered.
0: Yeah, I mean, Red Dawn, even though Kevin Reynolds didn't direct it, uh, John Milius did, it kind of feels like the film in his body of work that I would probably compare this the most to. I mean, Mm. I know Kevin Reynolds wasn't happy with how Red Dawn turned out, and I think some of that might have been John Milius's direction. Yeah. Uh, Actually, I think a lot of it was John Milius's direction where – Uh, You know, I've heard Kevin Reynolds say that, like, uh, he kind of made it more about um, American exceptionalism, and that wasn't really the intent. The intent was to, I think, put Americans in the shoes of a nation that's being invaded by a a foreign power, which, like, I, I think, like, if you look at Red Dawn as as like alternate history or like speculative science fiction, kind of what it would be like to actually be invaded by the Soviet union. I, I don't think it would like realistically play out that way. I don't think that's what that story is trying to do. I don't really yeah. think that was the intent with that film, but I think that's how a lot of people watch it. Like, Paratroopers know, yeah, it suddenly and, film,
1: so. and without warning, dropping into rural Colorado. Yeah. No. <laughs> um, you know, like, I, I
0: I don't think that was the intent with Reynolds' screenplay. Like, mm-hmm. um, I mean, I remember something Philip Kaufman said about why he thought the unbearable lightness of being film adaptation did well basically everywhere except America. And he said he thought it's maybe because Americans don't, most Americans don't really understand what it's like to have foreign tanks in their streets. Like, he, you know, they don't understand what that feels like and yeah. how to how to approach that so i think like what kevin reynolds was maybe trying to do with red dawn is to put an american audience in the shoes of people in other nations who are in that position you know and i'm not sure that's quite how the film turned out but you can see a lot of that intent i think like in the text of the film and there's definitely analogies drawn in red dawn between you know the american uh Rebels, the Wolverines fighting the Soviets, and, you know, for instance, the Viet Cong, or, mm. you know, they even name drop um the Afghanis in that movie because that war, you know, the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan was happening while Red Dawn was coming out. So, uh, you know, and you dress up Charlie Sheen like a Mujahideen fighter in that movie. Yeah. Like, some of that, it, it, like, going back and watching it now, I'm like, oh, like, some of this is actually pretty. On the nose, even though I think like that message does kind of get muted.
1: And I think with Milius directing, like he so fetishized the military and and Theodore Roosevelt, you know, going off on his own little boy's own adventure that I, I think it's hard not to read it as a self insert. Like sure. like th- th- this is how I wish my late teens, early 20s really were. And it, it's hard to take it seriously as um, an intent to show America how terrible a foreign invasion would be. And, and I mean, like, you know, John Milius I think is, is a great filmmaker, you know, I think he's problematic in a lot of ways, but so are a lot of filmmakers. Um, And I, and I think that's one where his personal outlook sort of interfered with his filmmaking. Whereas something like Conan, I think it actually helped it. Well, sure. I, I think that's absolutely right. I would say. So
0: anyway, like I think by the time, Kevin Reynolds comes across the play mm-hmm. Nanawate by uh, Master Simone. Like, I think he kind of found material that said what he was maybe trying to say with Red Dawn yeah, in, in a way that's maybe even more effective. And I, well, I would actually say like definitely more effective and yeah. more, more subtle. Um, I mean, this wasn't his first film. I, I think like between, red dawn and this he directed fandango which is like a pretty well-liked well-remembered movie um and that kind of kicked off his whole collaboration with kevin costner which um i found out just doing research for this that apparently kevin costner really wanted to play the uh jason patrick role in the beast the oh wow uh, soviet soldier with a conscience who thinks for himself uh um, yeah and uh i guess it basically came down to like kevin reynolds saying like hey you're my friend but you're not right for this part <laughs> which i think is like the right decision you know there's definitely yeah. lines and things that like i I tried to picture kevin costner in it and like you know jason patrick i think was the right absolutely the right choice um yeah for sure i guess he had done uh lost boys but it hadn't been released yet when he was filming this so yeah so i i, I think
1: yeah, to to get somebody so green, at, at least as far as American audiences were were concerned, I think is like definitely the right choice. Yet, yeah, like that that all these Russians were blank slates. To 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 a, a viewer, I think is kind of essential to this movie because I think if you cast a movie star, you know I know Costner wasn't what he was like a few years yeah. later at at this point, but I think if the more you make these characters recognizable the more you immediately start to root for them and i think it's sort of essential for the the emotions of this movie for you to be confused about who you're you're rooting for even if like it's difficult to root for anybody really
0: right i mean one of the great kind of reversals in this film is that uh, i mean you have that brutal attack on the village you know they gas the woman they shoot the goats they blow up the mosque they run the man over with the tank tread yeah they they poison Uh, the water poison you know it's this incredibly brutal attack and then you know the the gas masks come off and you know the soviets are being played by american actors speaking Mm -hmm. with american accents and it's like saying okay these are the characters we're asking you to identify with in this situation it's not the not the heroic rebels it's not the the people that something and just as happened to, it's kind of saying, well, you know, consider putting yourself in the shoes of these Soviet characters, which is sort of an unexpected flip, I think, for an American audience. Yeah,
1: and and I think it's even brave to not even address the fact that, like, Americans and also British, you know, military advisors and intelligence services are there in Afghanistan. They were there from the beginning, and it's not even mentioned that, oh, maybe, maybe we can get you know to the Americans to yeah because you know you're the uh, Constantine is sort of like in between like he's sort of stateless through the event yeah. because of the events of the film and there's no like mention that there's a third way for him to maybe continue to exist at after the, the events of the film it's it's just between the mujahideen and the soviets
0: and like a lot of films I think they would try to work in I always think of them as like the journalist character like oh here's the the American journalists we're going to put them yeah, into yeah, the story yeah. to have that, like, kind of entry point. And it's not... The film never bothers with that. And I, I think because of that, it kind of forces you to consider who you identify with at various points of the movie in, in more complicated ways than just looking from an outside
1: observer. Yeah. Uh, and I'll credit to yeah. Mastro Simone for not being interested in that story as the original playwright. Like, yes. He, he went like we can get into the crazy story of him writing this play. Yeah. <laughs> uh but he was he was not interested in his own perspective. He was interested in the perspective of the Afghans and their struggle yeah. against the Soviets.
0: And I think like this film strikes a really really careful balance of making you empathetic for both parties even though mm-hmm. like I think in the film you can say the Soviets are the antagonists uh george zunza's character the tank commander he's like the antagonist but you also still feel for him i think you feel for all these characters and you kind of understand they all have different motivations and they're all sort of in conflict with each other and it's it's using that to ask bigger questions about war and about cycles of violence and that sort of thing yeah also like george zunza like um he's like one of the few Kind of older actors in the group because you have a lot of like younger up and coming people. Jason Patrick, uh, Steve Bauer, Stephen Baldwin, who's surprisingly good in this movie. Yeah, he's great. <laughs> uh, uh, Don Harvey. You know, you have a couple of people like that. But like George Zinza, I'd seen him in other films. You know, he's somebody I was like, oh, he, like he's good, he's good. I'd, I never would have imagined like he had this performance in him yeah. if I'd seen just his other performances you know like i it took me a while to even realize like it was the same guy because like he lost a bunch of weight for this role and you can tell he just like really threw himself into this role as the tank commander and he has such a different presence than he usually does in films and he's he's so good like when he's talking about when he calls out jason patrick's character for like oh you know you think for yourself and the way he phrases it just makes it sound like thinking for yourself is the most
1: selfish thing in the world. Yeah. It's like we 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 gave like that. We gave. And I think that's such yeah. a perfect distillation of the Russian mentality. Yes. At least in, in Stalingrad when like every single ounce of your being was dedicated to defeating the, the Nazis. I mean yeah, you know, a couple hundred years earlier they burned down their own city. Mm-hmm. In an effort to defeat Napoleon, like there, there is no individuality in, in a time of war in in the Russian psyche, and and we we see him give this monologue. It's like, like his backstory is the movie Come and See or, or, or something. Yeah, like, yeah. And I mean, so, like, I, like talking like, about un- being that uh, tank yeah. boy, you know,
0: throwing Molotov cocktails on on German tanks, yeah. and it's like, you, you do imagine that at some point, you know, he would, well. You know like he was the partisan like he was the in the same position that the mujahideen fighters are yeah. in. you know i mean that that parallel is yeah. is uh brought to the forefront and kind of underscored with this line towards the end of the film about like you know how is it that we're the nazis this time mm. and trying to understand how you how you can go from one to the other in the course of a lifetime but um i don't know but he, I, it's such I a good think, performance too like he's yeah. so He's so Russian without having to put on like a you know yeah. thick accent or anything. Like he doesn't bother with all of that kind of superficial stuff. It's more just his his demeanor, his mannerisms, his presence, like all, all that stuff. I, I think like it's you know he's he's
1: kind of the villain, but he's also maybe one of the most interesting characters mm-hmm. in the film at the same time. And, and I think that mentality also speaks to what happened in Afghanistan in the ensuing years, because you yes. know after when Russia left, there were two civil wars and then the Taliban took over. And it's sort of yeah. like, you know, how can you as a people, as a country let this new oppressor just replace an old one? But through his performance, it's like, oh, this is how a people who have been oppressed and have been through such like horror Can turn into the very thing that they fought against, and I think that's like one of the most (laughs) profound statements that the film could uh, makes.
0: I I think that's one reason why this film has aged really well compared to, say, Rambo Three, or Mm. even like I, I think like a lot of more recent uh American films about the American invasion of Afghanistan like you look at some of them just from a couple of years ago like Lone Survivor or whatever and it's like ugh. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> you know I, I think this film it's it's interested in saying something a little bit more insightful and mm. and I think like that's the reason why even though it's made in 1988 like I kept thinking about it You know, for uh, basically, you know, any any time I watch the news in the last 22 years or whatever it's been like, it's been one of those films that I just kind of keep coming back to and thinking about and thinking about its relevance and what it says and how you can go from being, um, you know, the good guy to the bad guy or, yeah. uh, you know i mean that's oversimplifying it a little bit but mm-hmm. you know these types of questions I, I think are sort of important to understand like you know how the united states ended up in afghanistan how the taliban ended up in charge of afghanistan you know all, all these even also just recently like um, russia's invasion of ukraine stuff like that i i think about this film often and just how the how the, the moral high ground of certain nations can shift from one yeah. to another and that sort of thing. And I like, I love, um, the feeling of history when you look at the Mujahideen fighters and the beast when you know, they're all shooting at the tank and it's almost like going back in time when you see the Lee Enfield rifles and then the, the old uncles even got like this, um, some kind of like musket from like, you yeah, know, probably, yeah, 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 you know, the one that, when they kicked the British out of Kandahar in the 19th century, you know, you get this sense that there's been this long history of wars in, in the region Mm -hmm. and the kind of long-term effect that it might have on a people and uh, who might ultimately be empowered by that or take advantage of that. Like I I like too, that it, it doesn't just play the Afghanis as you know, one note, mm. good guys. Like, you know, there's, there's characters with different...
1: Their games. own internal conflicts, uh, yeah.
0: I mean, you have uh, Taj who kind of inherits the, the leadership of the village. He becomes the Khan when his uh, brother dies. And, you know, he's just somebody you get the sense that he's in over his head and he's trying to do yep. the right thing and he's trying to figure out what that is. And he's a young guy who's put in this position of leadership and uh you know you've got his cousin um mustafa Mustafa, and like you know he's more interested in taking advantage of the situation to pillage and plunder uh, pillage plunder and like i i like that when they're first talking you get this whole backstory that is just kind of alluded to like hey we we got to put these old grudges behind us and go after this tank together so you get the sense that there's already a history of conflict between different tribes or you know that they're not unified the only thing that's unifying them is going after this tank yeah you have uh taj's she's not quite his sister-in-law but she was like engaged to his brother who gets killed and she's out for vengeance and she's not necessarily interested in doing the right thing it's just she's after vengeance and I, I love uh, that kind of through line of the women, you know, at the very beginning when they're all throwing the rocks at the tank and it's this sort of impotent gesture, you know, like mm-hmm. they're just bouncing off the tank. It doesn't do anything, but they kind of keep following and keep following. And like ultimately what brings the tank down at the end, it's when they
1: set off the plastic explosives and it's, it's rocks <laughs> dropped down on the tank. Yeah, um, and, and I, I don't know how much Master Simone was cognizant of The fact that, you know, Afghan women are just so enormously oppressed, you know, know, for decades and and decades under the Taliban and and for for them to be, you know, the ones who are crying the loudest for the blood of the Soviets and to have and to take such an instrumental role in destroying the tank, I think, is. Is really profound, especially at, at yeah. the time it, it was made.
0: And also because the men keep
1: kind of like brushing them off, and they're not even yeah. really supposed to be like follow. You know, they're
0: they're following at a distance, but it kind of keeps cutting back to this group of women who are like following the guys who are chasing after the tank, and mm-hmm. they're gonna get that tank no matter what. But yeah. it, there are all these like great little touches too, like when uh, the group of women find uh, Constantine tied to the rock their faces are uncovered and they're throwing rocks at him. But when the guys show up, like the Afghan guys, then they cover their faces because it's like, you know, they don't even really consider the Russians men. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, when uh, Constantine's asking for Nanawante, which is like sanctuary mercy, you know, they have that line about like, ah, like even a crow can talk. It doesn't make it a man, you know?
1: Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Either, you know, they're not men and neither are Russians. You know, they're not going to extend these uh, afghan values to a soviet invader but taj kind of steps in and he's the one who's trying to upkeep these old values these uh, afghan traditional values and you know that means not throwing out sanctuary even to their enemy
1: um, yeah, so I, I think that's yeah. part of an important um a- aspect of taj's whole whole journey and you know because he he really holds his uncle in such high regard who, sort of symbolizes the the traditional old ways of, of Afghan culture and Mustafa is sort of the, like represents the consequences of invasion. So like the, the West and the modern world are sort of infecting Afghanistan with these, you know, yeah. like these individualist um, values like, take what you can and, and leave the rest in the dust. And, and Taj is saying like, no, even under threat of annihilation, these values are important. They make us who we are. And, and for the film to make that argument, you know, so subtly, I think it is just an incredible accomplishment. I I
0: think so. And you do get that feeling that like at that point in time, Afghanistan was at a crossroads culturally and Mm -hmm. uh, socially. And, you know, the film kind of suggests that maybe it's, they're not going to go down the right path at the end. Like, you know, yep. when the women come back after they murdered the tank commander, uh, even though Taj told them not to, basically. And, like, she's and they're just covered in blood. Look on her face, covered in blood. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, she mentions the other two got away. But it's like you get the sense that Taj, people like him aren't going to keep that traditional way of life, that it's it's past some kind of tipping point. And of course, like Afghanistan's changed a lot since, you know, the 1970s to today. But um You know, it feels like that idea that, you know, a nation can be at that certain crossroads where you're either going to maintain these values or things are going to change, maybe not for the better. I I think that's captured really well in this. Also, like, it's kind of interesting that that Kipling quote at the beginning specifically mentions
1: the Afghan women. (laughs) I I wonder, I wonder, that's, that's such like a balls of steel move to begin your movie with. So I want to, I just want to read that real quick. All right. When you're wounded and left in Afghanistan's planes and the women come out to cut up your remains, just roll your rifle and blow out your brains and go to your God, like a soldier. Like, <laughs> That's great stuff. Like, like, holy shit. Like, like if the, if the Afghan women come for you, just kill yourself. <laughs> That's a, a better way to go out. Well, I, I like that it
0: starts with that quote, and then it cuts to like a pretty idyllic presentation of Afghan life, you know, you get that village and it's like, whenever, the, you know, the soldiers in the movie talk about like, oh, like Afghanistan, there's that irony of like, they're kind of the ones who are making it this like hellish place, yeah, you know, like yeah, yeah. when the when the uh, Soviets poison the water, and then later the uh, helicopter crew, they drink the water and, you know, and they end up inadvertently killing their own men. Then they're like, "Ugh, like Afghanistan. <laughs> but, yeah. but they're the ones who did it, you know, like the, there's that sense of um, like, oh, what a hellhole. But, you know, if you're the ones who are making it the hellhole, then I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> so,
1: Yeah. And I think that's a, a great example of regular soldiers being caught up in the systemic hell of a war, you know, yes. like. If you're 20 years old um, in, in a foreign country and being told to poison every watering hole that you find to um, stymie the guerrilla resistance, you're not thinking, well, in a week we might need this watering hole. You're just trying to not get killed by your own you know, commanding officer, and it's yeah. – And I think that's led to all sorts of tragedies, you know, in any field of conflict, and that includes the American military, for sure.
0: Also, the tank commander, there's a real, like, fatalism to his commitment to this tank and this mission. Like, whatever happens, he does not want to give up this tank, you know, they have a chance to escape on the helicopter and he's like no like we're tankers we're going back in the tank and like you see how crushed his uh, two crewmen are that they have to get back in that tank and, and it's, it's, it's leaking lineup. oil they
1: barely have any gas left the the it's overheating <laughs> it's, the the engine's seizing yeah. up they don't have any ammo
0: you know what that's something else i really love about this film is like there's not really like a decisive moment except maybe at the very end when it gets crushed by the rocks but it's like a slow kind of grinding down of this tank like you just feel like the tank's just getting like worn down and it's running out of ammo and you know runs out of this kind of ammo and that kind of ammo and when he talks about their standing orders like out of commission become a pillbox out of ammo become a bunker out of time become heroes it's like it's
1: you know it's kind of a metaphor for the soviet union deteriorating as it's in afghanistan (laughs) (laughs) um i mean the Tank
0: itself, I think, is like kind of this metaphor for the Soviet invasion itself, or maybe yeah. all, all war, <laughs> maybe. Um, and again, like the the title, one release of the film is uh, the Beast of War, which makes me think of the tank as as this representation of war. And mm-hmm. you know, it's interesting to me that like when Constantine kind of defects, switches sides, and you know, promises to help them kill the tank. Like, he's not really joining the Mujahideen. Like, he's he's just got this one objective to kill the tank and not necessarily kill the crewman inside. And in fact, yeah. like, when they finally do stop the tank, he asks for mercy, sanctuary for the tankers.
1: Yeah. Because
0: you, know, yeah, cause like, the, the, you can see how like, corn when he's like, you know, are you an angel or are you a devil? Like, what, yeah. you know, what are you trying to do here?
1: Because yeah, the, the commander leaves him basically crucified on a rock, yeah. to to be killed by the mujahideen or the elements, uh, and and they they put a a grenade under his head, so you can understand why he wants to kill the people, even if they're his own countrymen, uh, who who put him in that, that that situation, yeah. And so at that point he's as driven by revenge as as the mujahideen are, but then when Encountering his tank crew to see, and seeing from another perspective how helpless they are, he doesn't want to murder them anymore.
0: It sort of had me thinking, like, how do you stop war? Well, you you kill the tank, not the soldiers inside it, or you know, you you right. inflict vengeance on the on the tank, not the not the people. You know, and I don't know if that's anything profound or if I'm just rambling, but it just <laughs> <laughs> stuck in my mind this time about. You know what what the tank represents and what maybe destroying it but sparing the people inside it might might represent and again that that line you know are you an angel or a devil that that would not work with Kevin Costner. no
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> but you know it like at the very end he, he has an opportunity he could stay with the Afghanis and he doesn't mm-hmm. you know he leaves and like you know it was really really interesting to read um I mean, there's this fantastic article interview uh, with uh, Master Simone for Medium by uh, Matthew Golt, which talks about like the the right, you know, the process of writing the play and mm-hmm. Master Simone going to Afghanistan and being near death, sometimes other people's, sometimes his own. Yeah,
1: uh, well, yeah but yeah,
0: it's <sighs> uh, but like you know when he talks about like. The Afghani shooting, be captured Russian soldiers after they offered to let him interview them, and he he said like you know I didn't want to interview them because I knew like as soon as I stopped it would mean their deaths and I I wanted no part in this and it's like, I you know I could see, I could see that kind of feeling carried over to like the end of the film with uh, Constantine mm-hmm. like I, I want no part in this, you know in the cycle of vengeance I you know I kind of righted some wrong by destroying mm-hmm.
1: this and i'm i'm out of here you know <laughs> yeah. he flies off in the helicopter and it, it's, it's so interesting that he he brings uh the enfield rifle with him into the helicopter and and you, you know that sort of gift exchange yeah um but like master simone's experience in afghanistan i, I just found so fascinating you know be, he because he became sort of spellbound by the story of the mujahideen and just like started going to afghan restaurants and a- asking people, "Hey, how do I get we, we into thought Afghanistan?" Thought it was like CIA, <laughs> like yeah. <that. laughs> and and um, there's a really cool indie film that came out this year called Fremont, about oh, yeah. a female Afghan translator who worked for the American military, and she sort of like goes from being in the the Afghan community in Fremont, California, to where she lives to this Chinese American community where she works. And you know she stays in contact with the the Afghan community through you know like like restaurant owners. Yes. So I, I I immediately thought of that movie. Like, oh, I guess that's not the most insane thing to do. <laughs> like, if 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 you're trying to get Afghanistan, well, I guess this guy who owns this restaurant has been there, so maybe.
0: <laughs> I mean, it's and, funny in the article they talk about like how they originally rebuffed him. They're like, I don't know, go ask a travel agent. Like, yeah, <laughs> but. Uh, I mean, today it's probably marginally easier to plan a trip to Afghanistan than than it was during the Soviet
1: invasion. Um, because he just has to go to Pakistan and just, like, wait there for someone to contact <laughs> him. <laughs> and, and, like, you know, having to get the
0: permission of this warlord who could have easily just said no when he was, like, this—he he didn't realize until after the fact that it was, like, this terrible person who was, like, throwing acid in women's faces and, like, yep. you know, it was all kind of resting on— this guy's shoulders but yeah. um i mean and now I, today that the Taliban's back in charge like you can't really yeah you know unless you're some kind of weird adventure tourist you're probably not going to get a chance to ever yeah go visit <laughs> I, I saw this video on on youtube um about a guy i think he was british he put like lord's you got like one of those like you pay twenty bucks and you can add Lord to your
1: oh, yeah yeah, name.
0: yeah that guy who like went to tour Afghanistan like right as the Americans were pulling out this like weird tourist kind <laughs> of
1: tourism, tourism thing yeah
0: yeah no it, it, like it's always kind of strange to me to to see that like I I kind of get it but at the same time it's like oh I I wouldn't do that <laughs> yeah
1: it's also like such a like a fucking white person thing to do I know like, oh, I, yeah uh, ugh. But, well, um, <laughs> the, the thing like that I, I found most...
0: I would love to see, like, you know, I love ancient Persian history. Oh, Assyrian sure, history. yeah. yeah I like, yeah, would yeah, definitely, yeah. like, love to see, you know, I mean, I, I don't know how much it's, is left, but... Um, yeah. And, you, you know, and like, Baghdad I, is one of the most historical cities like, in the world. Afghani, Buddhas being destroyed, stuff like that. It's yeah. like, uh, it's, it's sad, because you're going to lose that history, but um, I, I think, like, people who kind of want to just go to say that, like, I was there while, you know, Americans were pulling out or I, I was yeah. there while the, while the band was in charge. I, I think that's a little bit <laughs>
1: strange. Because so. yeah, there's a lot of that sort of mentality with people trying to tour uh, Chernobyl and that kind of thing. Yeah. Which, there, I mean, there's, there's a like, lot of tourism there. But yeah, it's like, why, why, would, you, <laughs>
0: why would you want to? I don't know. but I, uh, I guess like, you know, I can kind of understand it. But at the
1: same time, it's like, t- just don't. <laughs> yeah. Because the, the thing I found most profound from... Mr. Simone's visit there was um, he he probably got some sort of waterborne illness from drinking this like mountain stream and um, this village eventually found him and when they discovered he was American not Soviet um, like this woman who lost everything in the war basically killed the one thing she had a goat to feed him and that sort of Afghan hospitality is the reason he's alive and I think profoundly affected him. And so he wanted to tell the story of these people. And, and I, I hear that about, you know, the hospitality behind um, like Syrian culture um, and, and Afghan culture. And like, it's such a tragedy that those ways of life of being extraordinarily generous are being obliterated because of armed conflict.
0: Yeah. I mean, that, that comes across in the film when they're talking about the Pashto values. Yeah. There's, um, I mean, like, Nanawati is the one that's kind of at the core of this film, but, you know, the two others, it's like retribution and hospitality. <laughs> those those yeah. together are like the, the three kind of code of honor values that come up in this film. Um, and we haven't really talked much about the uh, translator character. It's a mod samad played by uh eric avari who i I think is really good in this film as somebody who's kind of also sort of straddling in between these two these two cultures these two nations like he's um the character's afghan and he's working as a translator for the soviets and you know he went to university and he's educated and he's a communist but like he's kind of you know he's somebody who wants to see his nation brought into the 20th century but at the same time you see like the the racism and it's almost like not even racism it's more like paranoia that's coming off of the tank commander that you know he's just an afghani and he's like any other afghani he's going to deliver the tank to the mujahideen so he ends up murdering the translator and i mean you hear stories about that sort of thing happening but uh, he's the character that kind of imparts those values on constantine on
1: jason patrick's mm. character and that's what saves his life. And, and it also sort of speaks yeah. to, like, like what the hell are the Soviets even been doing there? Like, if yeah. they look down on the Afghans so much that they're going to kill their own translator, like, why even bother and inv- invade this country if, and, if you're well, not like, even going to value their The pe- character's, pe- like, trying to prove that, like,
0: I'm loyal to this cause, actually. Like, you know, when they're, when they have the um, misfire, the shell doesn't go off. He's the one who volunteers to go and Take it out, right? Like it's, yeah. you know, there, there's a few moments like that where he kind of tries to appease them, tries to prove that he's he's loyal and dependable, and like that doesn't save him. You
1: know, and they, there's a, there's a great exchange between Constantine and the commander where the commander asks him, "Why do you trust him?" And Constantine says, "Because yeah. he's trying his best." Yes. and and you know, when when one of his, when one of the other tank crew is like drinking rake fluid filtered through bread. Uh, <laughs> right. a, a, a translator <laughs> trying his best can carry a lot of weight. Yeah. Yeah. I was
0: wondering, what do you think about the whole, like, David and Goliath comparison that it makes?
1: Yeah, I, I think that's... Um, I think that was a comparison that I'm sure a lot of people are making between the Afghans and the Soviets and between the, the Vietnamese and the Americans. But I, I think it also uh speaks to the very important aspect of, of Islam in yes in the mujahideen you, you know that this is a, a holy war for them it's it's not just about repelling an invader it's about you know serving Allah and so I, I think if they're able to point to the Quran as a metaphor for, for their personal and national conflict i i think that's extremely important to to the fighters and and I think the the film captures that pretty well because it's it's a very effective scene when they come across this guy in the middle of the desert, like sort of screaming around a fire. Yeah. It it feels very, um. I'll, I'll use the word biblical because I don't think, Quranic <laughs> is is the is the correct terminology. But a good yeah. It it seems like something from, it, the ancient world has has sort of emerged in the twentieth century. Yes. I, I, like the tank um it was funny
0: like that article also included this little doodle that master simone did at like you know in the middle of the night when he woke up from a dream of these people you know throwing spears and shooting yeah. arrows at this tank and it's like this mythological monster you know it becomes like a dragon or something you know which uh, again like that that's uh a reason why i kind of like the title of the beast or the beast of war it, it kind of personifies
1: that tank and um, there's a was a really cool uh, mini series that came out maybe a year year and a half ago called 20th Century Men about sort of an alternate history where if there was like a super soldier program during the Afghan War and <laughs> and so Afghanistan becomes not only a proxy war between the Americans and the Soviets, but a proxy war between competing super soldier programs. And I, I couldn't help but think of that series when watching the film because like the, the humans themselves become the beasts; Like they become the embodiment of war in themselves. Like the, the entire national value system of East and Wester are embodied in these living monsters. And the Afghans are and their own values are caught in between. So if this topic interests anybody, I highly recommend 20th Century Men from Image Comics. I haven't
0: heard of it before, but this sounds right up my alley. It's <laughs> yeah. <sounds> really cool. <laughs> uh, but w- what I think you were saying before about the, the role of Islam in the film, I, I think that's really true. And it's something that I, I think like, obviously plays a big role in the film without it feeling like it's, I don't know, like like a religious movie or something yeah, like yeah. that like I, I think it just kind of feels like it, it's part of these characters lives and um in that article that interview like he talks about the sort of um fatalism of like ah it's the will of Allah. you know yeah. if, if it's his will that you die on this mountain then you'll die if not good like you know you can't really change that and like i, I think like you can see that represented in the film but there's also
1: there um, is a know, little bit of like fatalism who, in that i sorry, sorry. I just want to say that we we got a little bit of that fatalism debate in the 13th Warrior, which you and I discussed.
0: (laughs) A a big reason why I I wanted to discuss this film with you is we recorded the 13th Warrior audio commentary, which I'm hoping will be out by the time that people listen to this uh, on the Pink Smoke Patreon. But um, I was like, what would be a good follow up to that conversation and i feel like this film just had like a lot of carryover with mm-hmm. some of the themes the religious themes the cultural themes i mean the language stuff we talked a little bit about the um russian being done in english but like some of the the ways that they have to kind of communicate without really having any language you know, taj and constantine like I, I love those moments when they're trying to use hand gestures and they're trying to use sounds and kaboom and stuff like that just to kind of be understood and it's like you know even though they're two characters can't who can't really understand each other that chase when they're trying to make it to the canyon uh, to the past to destroy the tank it's like they're the only two kind of keeping up uh with each other like you know mustafa's kind of hanging back because he got his helicopter and there's like you know, an old guy and a kid who are kind of bringing up the rear and a guy who gets blown up when he runs around the corner, you know, so it's basically just uh, Taj and Constantine. And like, um, you know, I just like that, you know, they're the ones who are most laser focused on trying to destroy this tank and they're in it together and they they can't really speak, uh, you know, they they only have like one word in common. So, you know, the, the way that they have to try to make each other understood and you know like oh my god the the suspense because it it turns into this like totally desperate situation when they're like just trying to get that tank and you know they're tossing the rocket because like you forgot to give him the rocket for the rpg and like you know you kind of get the feeling that there's like barely a plan and these people barely you know can communicate and they're just trying to accomplish this one thing and like talking about some of the religious stuff like i love the detail of um like Constantine, you know, he's not framed as a religious character, but like he has that kind of curiosity about the culture, about the religion. Like when he's yep. talking to the translator, he's, he's like, you know, is that what you believe? And the translator says, well, after going to university, I don't know what to believe. <laughs> like, if, like if
1: I can balance my dialectical materialism <laughs> with, with my faith, then that's my business. Like, great.
0: Um, but like Constantine, you know, you, you get the sense that like, There's a curiosity there or there's like an openness there. And I love, um, Mm -hmm. you know, he's got those little round glasses and like one of them breaks. I think it's like a little homage to Battleship Potemkin with the broken glasses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, But like when he finally takes the shot with the RPG at the tank, I love that. First, he takes the glasses off and then he just closes his eyes when he fires. (laughs) It's like, you know, it's an act of faith shooting this tank with the Mm -hmm. RPG so you know there's details like that and even just i think like the idea of um, a holy war it's like um you don't start the holy war the invader decides that it's a holy war because like the beginning it's so apocalyptic and like you know the flamethrowers and crushing people and it's it's like the end of the world or something and you get the sense that there's a sort of righteousness to trying to set this right and you know, it's it's not like um, a holy war in the sense that like oh we're gonna go and convert people. It's like it's a holy war in the sense that
1: we're trying to do what's what's right. Yes, I, I think there's a sense of having a holy mission. Like if you believe yeah. that you know you're the people of God and this army of professed atheism is <laughs> coming to crush it's... your entire civilization, the the holiness and the the divine necessity of this war, I, I'm, I'm sure, was a great motivator. And, a, and that's yeah. why that the Taliban would eventually come to power, because those were the people that survived this the Soviet invasion. Yeah. I mean, Cameron Reynolds, I feel like these are themes that kind of pop up
0: in a couple of his movies. Like, uh, I mean, even Robin Hood. with Kevin Costner sort of deals with the friendship between a character who's Christian and a character who's Muslim. But Mm -hmm. um, like, I always think of maybe I would say this is my favorite Kevin Reynolds movie, but after this is uh, probably Rapa Nui, which is kind of another forgotten film about uh, Easter Island. And like that film takes a very different approach to religion. It's almost like the counterpoint to some of this stuff, but uh, I feel like Kevin Reynolds is one of those guys who doesn't really, Always get, uh, yeah, kind of for being, you know, an interesting filmmaker with uh, consistent themes and things that he explores. I guess because, you know, wow. mostly people I, I think think of him for either Robin Hood, which was a commercial success, or Waterworld,
1: which was a commercial
0: failure. Yeah. Uh,
1: but, I mean, you know, it, but, it's so like the action is so clear and thrilling in this movie, there's great yeah. moments of suspense. Like you, you really are on the edge of your seat, and like the the human drama is communicated so effectively. No, it's. I mean, as much as we're talking about this film and
0: kind of like intellectual dissect its themes and ideas, kind of wait. Like it's also just
1: exciting. It's yeah. Entertaining, you know, like it fucking chase, rules. It, <laughs> it's, it's great. And like, but the, it's, like, what what does Hollywood do to director that this is followed up with Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves? Yeah. Like, yeah, like if if ever there was a mid movie that's could... <laughs> and I, I know it was, a, it was a commercial blockbuster, but man, that's a movie that could well, just I think put, like put you to in sleep. End,
0: Kevin Reynolds like he kind of parlayed that into doing rapid Nui, which yeah, um, which is a film that like has pretty much disappeared from existence. I saw that it's it's finally getting a Blu-ray. Uh, I'm gonna have to pick that up, but like. I think it's one of those Warner archive ones that has like no special features though. Yeah. So I'm a little bit bummed, but like, that's a film I've seen, I think exactly twice, like once in uh, probably like 1995 when it came out on video. And then like, mm-hmm. again, as an adult and it's like, every scene is just like burnt into my memory. Oh wow. Uh, but uh, you know, and then like, I, I think after water world, world flopped, um, you know, he's had like other attempts at kind of doing something, Commercial like uh, Count of Monte Cristo, but um, or that even like that that Tristan and Isolde film. I don't think it. I don't know if it did super well. The um, no. got produced with um, uh, what's his face James Franco. James Franco is <laughs> in Tristan and Isolde, um, and I, I think like maybe after that, his career kind of slumped. And the the last thing I think. He, i've seen of him was that movie uh risen
1: with the uh, joseph finds which mm-hmm. um also did not do very well
0: yeah i i think probably because it kind of feels like like a christian movie that also kind of rebuffs the christian movie audience <laughs> i think like mm-hmm. it's kind of a weird film um i didn't really love it. it it's kind of an interesting idea but it's like one of those films where i, I kind of get why that one didn't do well because it's like oh who's this for and now i think he i think he does like tv stuff i think he probably shoots maybe a bunch of those kevin costner tv shows that i don't
1: watch yeah Um, but i mean there there is a um a really interesting thread about like faith and destiny in count of monte cristo Yeah, because the, the the guy who who's who saves um the titular character um you know is a is a priest who preaches to him about faith as he's teaching him to you know Swashbuckle. Um, and the, and, the importance, and, I think, of like myths or
0: telling parables, like you know, what, what kind of story is it? it? It's a parable. It's like a David mm-hmm. and Goliath, you know, where you feel like this little story has much larger implications. Uh, I, I think that's kind of true of a lot of his movies. And like, there's ecological themes that come up. There's, uh there, there are ideas that are consistent, I think, through his body of work, but. Uh, you know again now i think maybe he's just sort of fallen into that like tv hole of yeah. uh, i i don't watch these kevin costner shows there's like a bunch of them
1: <laughs> yellowstone <laughs> like, and it, it set her up. Uh,
0: yeah yeah i i don't i don't know i mean the beasts it flopped but like it, it kind of flopped for reasons independent of like why a movie should flop like yeah uh, supposedly there was a change in studio management at columbia and like what's sort of common is when the new management comes in they they blame everything on the old management and it, it looks good if uh, if you know everything that got greenlit by the um, previous establishment kind of goes away or disappears so i think they tried to dump the movie they were i think maybe contractually obligated to give it a theatrical release so they put it out in two theaters yeah uh in in new york and los angeles and that was it so like you know, I, I've seen, I was looking through, like, some other podcasts and things just to kind of get a sense of what people thought of this movie. And I heard some people be like, oh, I wonder why it flopped. Well, oh, I guess it was because it was up against these movies. It's like, no, it's because it was in two theaters and that was yeah. it. Like, I, I think probably had it been given a wider release, I think it probably would have done okay. I mean, it's still kind of an unusual film. And, uh, it would need to have been
1: marketed very smartly, I think, yeah. especially especially in 1988. Um, I think it would have been a critical success.
0: Yeah, I, I think so. Um, I mean, it has picked up like a cult audience. Like, who mm-hmm. who loves this movie are tank people, who people who love military history. Like, awesome. I, I know a lot of people talk about this as like, oh, that's the tank movie. It's like the holy grail of tank movies because <laughs> it it actually gets almost everything right, and um, it's got a real T fifty five tank. It's it's so cinematic it's like the coolest looking thing in the planet <laughs> the, the way that it's filmed um i mean the, we haven't really talked about the cinematography but this is like a good looking film it looks like an art movie you know or maybe that's the wrong word but like it doesn't look like it's it's trying to be like an action blockbuster or anything like that it, it has a really interesting look to it and um uh, it's shot by doug milsom who got started working for kubrick i think he was a like camera assistant on um, Barry Lyndon, he shot uh, Full Metal Jacket, a bunch of stuff. Uh, I think he's retired now since his son died tragically. But uh, no, that's too bad. I I just love the look of this film, like kind of earthy hues, the way it captures the. I mean, it's the Sinai Desert standing in for Afghanistan, but it just looks great. Like all the weird yeah, yeah, yeah. mountain formations. There's like at the past There's like those weird rocks that have this like swirly shape to them, and it. Hands across, and it just looks so great, but um, I love all the shots of like just the tank moving and kicking up dust and how it fits up the frame, how it fills the frame i, I think it's it's fantastic i I love the look of this movie
1: yeah and and like the you know there's a scene where they they set up these like radar devices to um try to detect enemy movement at night, and the tank just starts like firing. Um, like it's flamethrower and machine guns, you know, into the dark, and it just so incredibly cinematic, and yeah, and 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 you feel the desperation of the tanker as they're firing blindly. It's it's pretty incredible.
0: After when they say, oh, it, you know,
1: we killed a herd of deer, but then when yeah. you see it, it's
0: it's like an ibex or something weird. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, that's not a deer. That's a that's a something. I, I think they do have deer in Afghanistan, but they're like little vampire looking things i don't know I, <laughs> <laughs> I might be completely wrong but i think afghanistan has, has deer with vampire teeth uh, and it, a, another great I'm moment is the when the
1: the the afghans come across the deer and the and they just think it's oh, just they say, Soviet oh, the soviets will kill anything
0: like, yeah they just kill and, to
1: kill i i think like again like that's one of the
0: points where you feel like there's there's empathy on both sides you know it's not just saying that the soviets are completely evil you know that these people are these soldiers are in a place that they don't belong and they're scared and they're paranoid and they're you know they feel like uh, outside those tank walls everything's hostile so you know it, it does yeah. kind of strike that balance and um, you know it, it it's tough to to have empathy for soldiers in, in an army that's not in the moral right. But I I think like sometimes it's important to kind of keep in mind that like a lot of those, yeah, you know, there's war crimes and stuff like that, but a lot of soldiers don't necessarily even want to be there.
1: Um, Yeah. I mean, even in the, the conflict in Ukraine, you know, there's just so many like (laughs) prisoners or, yeah or um teenagers who were conscripted into the Russian army that like it's hard to it's hard to sympathize with them but it's also hard to hate them yeah. for being there
0: i mean you have that line by Constantine, which i feel like it's it's empathetic to soldiers in that situation but also not completely condoning what they do where he said like you know i try to be a good soldier but it's impossible to be a good soldier in a rotten war you know and it's yeah. kind of asking people to have that conscience to say that if you have a choice you don't you don't fight the rotten war. You, you can't you can't be a good soldier in that situation you know so it's tough i know like you hear a lot of people say um over here like oh like i don't support the war but i support the troops but you know there's times where like <laughs> i've definitely lately had the thoughts cross my mind where it's like well you know like some of those people volunteer to go you don't have to support them They don't have to be over there, but, uh, you know, I I do try to have empathy for people in these situations and try to understand how they end up there. And,
1: you know, I am, you know, uh, there's this um, project that my my dad's involved in called the War, Peace and Justice Symposium that, you know, tries to tell stories like, like that, where you're like creating empathy for people, but also trying to sort of you know, decide or to work towards justice post-war. So like what would justice for yeah. um, the Afghan people look like a post-Soviet invasion? And they recently hosted an art exhibit called the John Bonham Project, which is named after the the main character and Johnny got his gun. And it's um, like combat art. Uh, so it's both civilian and military and ex-military artists drawing portraits of, you know, wounded veterans, um, mm-hmm. Most mostly done when they were like at Walter Reed. And it's, you know, pretty harrowing, you know, like W amputees, people with like tubes in their in their chests. And you know, a lot of these artists are fervently against the war. Yes. But they're so incredibly affected by the stories of, you know, these men who like dove on a grenade and survived that, um, that it's, it, it's a real sort of profound example of how you can have empathy for people in these, in these situations, even if you're against what they're doing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really perfectly put. And I think that's, that's central to what this film is saying mm-hmm. and, you know, how it kind of explores the ways that war perpetuates itself. I mean, maybe the moral of the movie is just don't invade Afghanistan. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It could be that too. Um, you know, the, it's the place where uh, empires go to die, they say.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I forget if Kipling said that, but somebody did.
1: Yeah. <laughs>
0: um, so, yeah, I, I feel like we, we covered a lot. Is there anything we didn't touch on that you wanted to mention or
1: talk about? No, no, I, I think it um, I think we covered everything I wanted to say yeah.
0: No, uh Great, great movie I,
1: Yeah,
0: yeah I think,
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah, so uh, Thank you for joining me oh, My talk. pleasure, thanks for finally uh, Pushing me to watch it, it's been on my list For a while I'm glad, uh, I'm glad this worked out